And for the rest of us, if you could get your Bibles ready or your phone apps ready and turn to John chapter 5 for me. John chapter 5. When you've got it, say got it. Only one person has got it. When you've, John chapter 5. When you've got it, when you're there, say got it. John chapter 5, chapter 1. John chapter 5, verse 1, sorry. See, only one person was listening. All right, excellent. All right. We've got five people who are there. I'll start reading. John chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Colonnades? Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick, up, pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. All right, with that, let's invite Pastor Joe up and just share the word. Good morning, everybody. Nick, Nick left out the last 15 verses. So let's carry on reading from verse 16. And we'll read from verse 16 to verse 30. Got it? Everyone's, everyone's there? Everyone's there? Excellent, excellent. What a great way to kick things off. Okay. And then, and, then I'll, and then I'll pray after that. Okay, so. All right. So, verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things, On the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, but not um, kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so, has, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And as he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man, do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will come, sorry, will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Verse 30, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that in him we have life, in him we have purpose, in him we are made complete. As we look at the passage this morning, I pray that you will meet each one of us where we, we are at, like you did with the invalid man at the pool, and that we might hear your voice that invites us that we want to get well, or that asks us, do we want to get well? So give us open ears, give us clear eyes, give us soft hearts, so that we might heed your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll get straight into the sermon, and I'll do my announcements at the end of the sermon. Um, so yeah, because Nick sort of threw me off, off kilter there. But in verses 1 to 15, we have this. See, I'm, I'm not going to look at every, like, the whole 30 verses. I wanted to read the whole 30 verses because it helps provide a bit of context as to what is taking place here. And the context is really important because it's not about just Jesus healing on the Sabbath day. It's not about this guy who ends up being healed and picking up his mat and walking. But it's actually found in how Jesus describes himself and the way he describes what God is doing. As, I see on, as you see on the slide there, how his father is at work. How many of you guys remember what your dad does for work? Raise your hand. Yeah? Craig, what's your dad, what did your dad do for work, bro? Yeah, what was the business? A manufacturing business. That's very cool. What does your dad do, Danny? Tax stuff. Oh, tax stuff. I'll talk to you later. No, just, okay. Tax stuff. Okay, and we all know that our father is, is always, our, our dads are always doing things because they want to provide the, the love and the care and the protection that they have for them. And this is not excluding mums, but you, you saw that. You saw the way your dad conducted themselves for the benefit and for the blessing of their family, the way they provided for them, all that sort of stuff. 
what I really like about this passage is, is how Jesus gives us a clue in how we as God's children can discover specifically what the will of God is for each of our lives. That's the key. I hear people often sit there and say, what is God's will, what is God's will, what is God's will for me, specifically? And you hear the terms, the theological terms about the, 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 the permissible will of God and the specific will of God. There are things that God desires for you, things that God desired Israel to take place or to be a part of, and, and they missed out on it, and yet God was still able to work in spite of their, that's known as, in spite of their disobedience, that's known as the permissible will of God. But there's this specific will of God for Israel specifically, for particular individuals in Israel specifically, for you specifically, for the church specifically. It's like, and how then do we discover what that is? Now, looking at this passage, like I said, the first 15 verses is about how this amazing miracle takes place and how Jesus reflects the very heart of God by going out of his way to meet with this man who has been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years, 13,870 days. He's been sitting there desiring to get well. 13,870 days. He's been sitting there with no one to help him where he sees this pool that water gets troubled and whoever enters into the water first gets healed. 13,870 days where people had walked past him and not offered to help. Why? Because they wanted the help for themselves. 13,870 days where he's just been sitting there wanting to be made whole and then Jesus appears. And he asks him the simple question, do you want to get well? What happens? He sits here, he explains the situation, which if you're on the devotional wall that I have, I actually shared this, how we get so consumed with what we are going through, with the hardships we encounter, with the struggles that we face, that we fail to see Jesus standing before us, reaching out to us saying, Danny, do you want to get well? Joyce. Do you want to get well? Jono, do you want to get well? We miss out on that because we are consumed with this. And then Jesus says to him, get up, take up your mat, and walk. Now, I'm not actually preaching on this part. I just want to provide a bit of context for this. Because while he's walking, he's experienced this huge transformation. He's been set free. He's been liberated. 13,870 days where he's seen hope dissipate and disappear day after day after day for 13,870 times. And then all of a sudden, bam, he's up because he's encountered Jesus. He picks up his, he gets up, he picks up his mat. Hi, it's Judy. Sorry, welcome back. And picks up his mat and then walks. And then you have the religious legalists of the day who sit there and do they, I mean, for 13,870 days, these religious leaders would have seen him. They would have known who he was. They would have sat there and said, there's the cripple. There's the paralyzed guy. There he is trying to get to the water to get healed. For 13,000, I've got to stop saying that, eh? but I just like saying it. For 13,870 days, right? They see him walking with his mat. And do they say, praise God, what happened? Praise God, you're walking. Praise God, look at what you're doing. No. They go, you're carrying your mat. 
What are you doing tearing your mat? You're transgressing the law. You're sitting, and they jump on this guy's back. Who said you could do this? Not once do they sit there and marvel at the miracle that has just taken place. Isn't that like us as Christians? Don't we do that? I, I, I know I've quoted this before, Keith Henderson, my, my mentor, how he says that we as Christians, uh, if we are known as the army of God, we're the only soldiers that shoot our own wounded, that when somebody gets knocked down, instead of sitting there and coming alongside to encourage and to, to uplift and to build up, we sit down and say, Danny's on the ground, you okay, bro? Oh, no, not really. Oh, too bad. And that's what we do. We throw in a few kicks just to make them feel extra worse about themselves. Instead of looking at what God is doing in a person's life, instead of being witness to the miraculous that takes place in a person's transformation, a change of attitude, a, a, a truth revealed from the Scriptures, an encounter with the very maker of the universe that has transformed the person's mind and, and heart and attitude. And yet, we, we pick on every little thing. You, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't dress like that. Now, look, I, please, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not messing with anyway, anyone, because I'm one of the worst dressers around. But you know, you know what I mean? But we, we pick on minors and make huge issues out of minor things that don't reflect the very heart of Jesus. I had the blessing of, of, of going to a, a wedding and I got to chat with somebody and, and, and they were wrestling with, with their sexuality. And, and as I was talking with them, they started crying in front of me. And I said, why, why are you crying? I'm sorry, if I, what am I sharing? Because like I shared that I didn't agree with certain lifestyles and things like that because of biblical standards. But they started crying because they said, because I've shared with you what I'm struggling with and you didn't freak out. You didn't freak out. I feel like I can talk to you because you didn't freak out. Because that's what we do, don't we? We, we sit down and we jump on things instead of showing how, how does the Lord desire to connect with this person and to reveal the love of Jesus to them. I find it really fascinating. So it's in, in addressing these religious legalists. If you look at verse 16 in your Bibles, you see these attitudes after this guy doesn't know who it is or reveals and finds out that it's Jesus who healed him. In verse 16, if you look in your Bibles, it says, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. So they were looking for him. Now, I like how it continues in verse 17, because it is addressing this persecution, it is addressing this legalism, it is addressing this living to the letter of the law instead of living to the spirit of the law. Okay, I'm not, I'm not discarding the law, I'm not discarding obedience, I'm not discarding the scriptures, but it's how we can sometimes be governed by the letter as opposed to the spirit, and allowing the spirit to govern our actions and our thoughts and our, and our speech and our conduct. And so in verse 17, we read this. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, in discovering what the will of God is for us as the children of God, it starts off with this basic point in verse 17. If I change it, okay. And that is the knowledge of his position. Let me explain, okay? Those two words at the beginning of this verse, or sorry, at the beginning of what Jesus is saying, speak volumes to the religious ears that were listening. 
As a matter of fact, when he sits there and he says, my father, you see in verse 18, if you have a look at this, this is their response to those two words. It was this reason they tried to kill him, all the, sorry, all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God. You see, Jesus' identity had been established through God's word, through the promises of the Old Testament. His identity had been confirmed by the representation that John the Baptist had when Jesus showed up and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As he prepared the people to receive Jesus. There was a testimony of God the Father himself at Jesus' baptism when the Spirit of God descended upon him as a dove in front of everybody and says, behold, my beloved, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so when he calls God his Father, he is placing himself in a position of equality with God, that he is, in fact, God. You look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, you read about that. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, Philippians 2, 6. So this commentator by the name of John Gill, he says this, that Jesus, when he states, he who is my father, not by creation or by adoption, but by very nature, he goes, he is God the Father's only begotten son meaning he is one of the same kind, not made and sanctified, not created and ordained, but one who is and shares the very nature of God, his Father. That's why that knowledge of his position, it validates, firstly, his father's position of authority over him, but also validates and authenticates or qualifies his position as his son. And so as you read through the rest of this chapter in this dialogue that Jesus is having with these leaders, you have these verses come out where he is sitting there and saying, this is why I am who I am. This is why I can say what I can say. This is why, because it has been entrusted to me as God's only begotten son, verses 22 and 23, or first half of 23, it says, moreover, Jesus speaking, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, to himself, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. You look at verse 27, that God has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. And in verse 30, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Now, according to the Scriptures, those of us who are the children of God through faith in Christ, by believing in what he has done for us on the cross, his birth, his life, his death and resurrection from the dead, I am told that we are in Christ. Ephesians chapter one explains all that. We are born again by his spirit and sealed by that spirit as the Holy Spirit of promise. Therefore, I am placed in this position where I can be called 
not only the son and daughter of the living God, but I can call the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob my father. That he is my father in Christ. And in like manner, be called by the God of creation in Christ a son or a daughter. That's what 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 proclaims. And I can read such words like in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, that I will live. This is what God says. I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. I know I've told you this before, but it's like, it, it, it's just, it's, I, think, I, think, I think it best sums up that whole idea of not only like Galatians 4 9, known and being known by, but you know how I, I told you those guys that would go play basketball over in the US? And I always sit there and say to them, if you make it to the NBA and you're interviewed by someone, can you tell them that you know me? Because no, there's no deal. If I sat there and like Ben Graham, who was a great basketball player, and if he made it to the NBA and I sat there and said, oh, Ben Graham, I taught him in school, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything, because you can say anything. You're like, oh, I, could, I know Dwayne, jo- Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Or I, I know this. That doesn't mean anything. But if they sit there, and they're on TV, and they say, I just want to do a shout-out to Joe Helg. And you're like, oh, oh, he said your name. He said your name. You see the difference? You see the difference of being? So the fact that I can sit there and say that I, am, I, I, I know God as my father, it means very little by the fact that he knows me as a son. He knows me as a son. He knows everything about me. He knows everything about you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows, he, know, he knows the thoughts and desires of your heart. He knows those things that you struggle with. That's what he knows as our Father, and he is ultimately and directly involved with us as, his father, as our Father. Therefore, from this knowledge of his position as our Father and our position as as his child, then there's this other aspect that needs to come out. And this is what I call the aspect of the knowledge of his authority and activity. This is in verses 17 and 19. And this is the key to discerning the will of God in your life. This is the key to discern it. Okay? So in verse 17, again, we read, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. This same thought is repeated in verse 19 when the Lord Jesus responds to the Pharisees' objections for him breaking the Sabbath and making himself equal with God. And it says this in verse 19, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Now, you'll notice in the wording that Jesus uses here, when he says, I can do nothing of myself. It's not saying that he's useless. It's not saying that he's incapable of doing that. Just that Jesus understood his position before his Father, that he was there on a calling and on a purpose that his Father had given him. 
and him wanting to honor his father, wanted to abide by his heart, his plan, his desires, and not his own. You ever notice why Jesus never actually did what he wanted to do when he was being tempted in the wilderness in Matthew 4? He could have made the stones to be turned to bread if he wanted. He could have thrown himself off the temple and be held up by the angels if he wanted. He could have done all of those things if he wanted, but he didn't want to because it wasn't what his father wanted. He only ever did things that aligned with God's plan of redemption for you. That's the only things that he ever done. He would only ever do or fall in line with what God's heart wanted, with what God's word wanted, what God's promises wanted. For example, when he's on the cross and he says, what's the last saying on the cross? Pardon? It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. Okay, it's the seven sayings of the cross. He says, it is finished at the end, and he gives up the ghost. Was the very thing, I thought it was the seventh. Thank you for correcting me. But he says these two words, I thirst. He says, I thirst. Why did he say I thirst? So that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That's why he said it. They gave him vinegar. But he says, I thirst. The significance of that wasn't about him. He didn't want to drink vinegar, but he wanted to fulfill the scriptures because that was what his father had set in place and what he wanted to abide by. And so he said, I thirst to fulfill the scriptures, to honor his father. You see, God is always at work. I am told that he never sleeps nor slumbers. That's in Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4. I am told that he is, not, he, is, he is not slack concerning his promises, as some people count slackness. That's in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. Rather, he has been working and will bring his handiwork to completion and... Oh, yeah, yeah, he has been working. He is working now and will bring his work to completion. So these words Jesus shares about being at work with his father, about not doing things on his own, can help me know the will of God for my life. And it's summed up in this one statement. For you, you, and you to discover what the will of God is for you in your life. And you know what that statement is? Discover... Learn, read what God is doing, and then join him in it. That's it. You look in the scriptures. You find out what is God doing in the world today, and then you join him in it. And then you'll be in the will of God. It's as simple as that. And you think, okay, and you read through the scriptures. For example, God wanted to make a nation, so he invites Abraham. Come on, I want to use you. Be a part of this. God wants to save his people, and he uses Joseph. He invites Joseph to be a part of that. Wants to deliver them from slavery in Egypt, so he invites Moses to be a part of that. Wants to take possession of, a, of an inheritance, so he invites Joshua to be a part of that. God is always at work, and he invites people to be a part of that work. He invites us to be a part of it as well. If you look in the New Testament, God sought to bring forth his Messiah. And so he approaches Mary and invites her to be a part of that plan. The way needs to be prepared for his arrival. So he invites and ordains John the Baptist to be the voice crying in the wilderness. He wants the world to know about the birth, life, death, resurrection of Christ. 
And so he appoints over a whole bunch of disciples, 12 apostles, over 500 witnesses that saw him to turn the world upside down with the gospel. And so he invites them to be a part of it. And so in each of these cases, the Lord invited people to participate of the work that he is doing in the world today. Which now leaves me to be confronted with this. What is, the world, what is God doing in the world in the 21st century? What is God doing in the world in, in Castle Hill of 2023? Well, here are some really cool things to think about. What is he doing? He's building his church that the gates of hell will not stand against it. Why? Because her foundation is Jesus Christ, and he's revealing his righteousness through the gospel. He is seeking and saving the lost. He is desiring that none should perish and that all should come to repentance and that he is moving people and from death to life that they might, be, might show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, as Nick shared earlier on before, and that we might partake of the work of believing in the one whom God has sent. John 6.29, which is a great verse, which we'll look at next week, actually, oh, the week after. Okay? Now, all the while, this work stays the same but it may manifest itself differently in each of our lives. For example, if Jesus is building his church, well, then he's given us, as the Scriptures teach, apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip others for works of service to build up the body of Christ. But that building up manifests itself in different ways. It could be the way our, our grandparents invest into the grandkids and seek to build up the church by investing into the kids and giving them a godly example to bear witness to. It might be all our professional career-minded people here who have these amazing jobs and amazing situations and, and encounter amazing people. It might be you guys as shining as a light, especially in the corporate world. I've been learning that the corporate world is just brutal. It's just brutal. And that to have somebody that has a standard of godliness, a standard of values, a standard of, of respectability and, and, and integrity, you could be that oasis in a desert of moral values. That could be you. It could be you and your community and, and, and going out and, and sharing just with a cup of coffee with your neighbors down the road. It could be going to a 40th birthday and stuffing your face with just this amazing meat for like hours on end from 12 midday to 8 o'clock at night, which was shocking. I woke up with a headache today that was ridiculous. Happy birthday, Ken. All right. But you see, it, it, it could be in the schools that with the way you conduct yourself towards your teacher, the way you conduct yourself amongst your friends, the way, the way you conduct yourselves just in everyday situations and the way you do your studies, that could be a means to which God can use you to build his church. It could be the invitation to a meal. It could be having a coffee with a friend. If we are all these living stones that as God has made us to build up his church, then we have in our uniqueness. If you, if you read in the scriptures, when they made altars, when they made altars out of stones, they were not allowed to cut the stones. It's just whatever they had, 
that would fit, and then they get in that one, and they'll put it in. And you see this on those, those, those home-making shows where they make these rock walls and things. So they say, we don't want to keep it natural the way it looks, whatever. But if you notice, God says, don't alter the stones, and they make the altar, and then they offer their sacrifices on it. That's a wonderful picture that each of those stones that make up that altar, it's each unique individual that I'm seeing in front of me now. With all your little chips and cracks and shapes and colors, that's you. I'm, I'm, I'm one of those rocks that have no moss on it. I'm smooth. <laughs> I'm a smooth rock sitting at the bottom, you know, like that, that, that's me, you know, holding, holding up other people because I'm not good for anything else, okay? But that's us. That's us. Okay, that's, and, that's the, and that we become effective being used by God for who you are in the building of his church. That's awesome. That, that the, the firm foundation that we've received in, in Jesus that we can build on, it, it grants us steadfastness what, you know, as he's building his church. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, we have received in Jesus this firm foundation upon which we can stand. It grants us a sure footing, okay? It grants us a, a sure footing. It grants us strength. It grants us a steadfastness that we cannot be moved. I've just got a whole bunch of verses there. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and His, and His mighty power. But I, I like these ones. When I say sure footing, Psalm 26.1, I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Why? Because my footing is the foundation of Christ. But here's the thing, that when I do slip, that when I make a silly choice, when I try to go in a direction away from this foundation that I've received in Christ, Psalm 94, 18, when I said my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, Lord, supported me as he draws me back to himself. So that through the gospel, which is the power of God, unto salvation, we might be about our purpose, being the vessels through which we can seek and save the lost, by, by to those in our homes who don't know Jesus, that we might show Jesus, to those in our jobs who have never seen Jesus in a real-life situation, might see Jesus through you in a real-life situation, that we might reveal Jesus, that now in our circles of influence, that people who have been full of religiosity and full of the hypocrisy of so many people before might be pointed to, through us, the beauty of the true Jesus Christ, who loves, who cares, and who calls people out for where they're at. You see, if God the Father is always working and God the Son is working too, then God the Holy Spirit is actively at work in each of us as well. So that in and through us, we might effectively join the Lord in what He is doing in the world. He is inviting us to participate. Which means this, and I want to close with this, let's not be like the invalid in verse 7. Okay, let's not be like the invalid in verse 7. He was focused in what everyone else is or is not doing that it clouded his vision of Jesus. Let me read verse 7 to you. Verse 7. So Jesus asks him in verse 6, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else, else goes down before me. Let's not be like the invalid who, when we hear Jesus 
say to me, Joe, do you want to get well? Do you want to get out of your frustrations? Do you want to get out of your inadequacies? Do you want to get out of your, your self-centered, egotistical righteousness? Instead, don't, let's not be like the invalid who says, sir, no one is helping. I'm so blinded to the fact that you have a position of authority over my situation, whatever that situation may be. I can't see that you were there reaching out and taking the initiative, meeting me where I'm at, and making this question that he asks me about myself. The fact that he goes, you want to be made well? And I just make it about me. Let's not be like that. Let's not be like the invalid who says, sir, I'm trying. I'm trying. My efforts to fix the situation, my, my limitations because I'm bound, my hard work over how many? 13,780 days. My extended frustration over no one helping me, that I can't help myself. It's taken my focus off the very one who stands in front of me and, and it blinds me to the authority that he has in my situation. Let's not be like that. Blinded to the fact that he's reaching out, blinded to the authority that he holds. Let's not be like the invalid who says, sir, someone else gets it before me. Let's not be like the invalid who doesn't consider, you know, everyone's out, everyone's out after themselves. No one's going to pass up the opportunity to, to, to be healed of whatever ailment that they're going through. I want to get well, but I am stuck. All the while, Jesus stands there. He stands there, meets me, and asks me, do you want to get well? Let's not be like the invalid and dismiss that question because we are so consumed with ourselves and, and what we're going through and the unfairness of life that I'm experiencing and, and the disrespect that I appear to be having. Let's not be concerned with ourselves. Now, this is not to dismiss your circumstances. This is not to belittle your context. But maybe instead of looking, at, looking for the water to be troubled so you can try to get there yourself, instead of, instead of looking at what other people are or are not doing, because it's affecting of what your choices of what you want to do, instead of looking at all of those things, let's look to the one who's reaching out to us. Let's look to the one who's continually holding out his hand. Let's look to the one that approaches us in the scriptures, approaches us in our times of prayer, approaches us as we fellowship with one another. Let us look to the Savior who loved us and died for us and rose again so that we might be made new. Let us look to Jesus so that when we see him, he says to us, Joe, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. May that be what we hear as we do away with what we see and what we're consumed by as we look to the beauty of who Jesus is. Because it is then we will be able to get up. It is then we will be able to pick up our mats. It's then we'll be able to walk with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the beautiful example that you have given us within the Scriptures we thank you for the reality that we can know what your will is for each of us as we join you in the work that you are doing, that as you look to build your church, we can be a part of that. 
As you look to have a holy, chaste bride, we can be a part of that. As you look to, to seek and save the lost, we can be a part of that. You are continually inviting us to come to you. And so I pray that today you will stir in each of our hearts and whatever we are going through, that we might just be on the lookout for you reaching out to us. That we'll have ears that would be open to hear you ask, do you want to be made well? And instead of being consumed with ourselves, Lord, that we might be consumed with you. So I pray you'll stir within our hearts a, a thirst, a, a desire, a, a passion to be more connected with you, to be with you as our God and as our Savior. So I pray for each person here that you'll stir in their hearts uh, a hunger that can only be satisfied by yourself. And, and we ask, Lord, that as you draw us to yourself, we might be the ones who will get up, who will pick up our mats, and we will walk with you in, in the light of your glory and the power of your spirit and on the promises of your word. So we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for today. May we not be the invalids. May we be people who will stand in and upon the beauty of who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, amen.